what other films have you guys seen? Because I've seen... Uh, seen a couple. Three? No. Seen a I'm couple. I'm not sure. Tuesday, I... The movie theater in Grooney had those $5 Tuesday nights. So right. My, my cousin Daniel and I went to go see um, Knives Out. Oh, yeah. How was that? Really good. Really good. Um, best... I won't say much about it because I, I think it's one of those movies that people have to go in like not really knowing much about. Um, but I really enjoyed performances from Michael Shannon, uh, Chris Evans, and um, who played the last bod? I can't remember. Daniel Dan- Craig? Yeah, Daniel Craig. I um, mean, the cast for that looks stacked. Yeah. yeah. Lakeith yeah. Stanfield's in it. I love yeah, him. Yeah, Lakeith Stanfield's in it. Uh, Tony Collette. Tony, Tony Collette is... I've never seen Tony Collette be bad in something. She's... Although now, um, now I feel like more people are noticing her existence because she was in Hereditary. Yeah. Before that, I mean, she was in stuff, but like, when was she ever in something like this? Something I don't know. That might be me talking out of my ass. Uh, I I don't know much about Tony Collette. Yeah, Juan, you did forget one other movie we've seen since we last recorded. On Sunday night, Juan and I watched the rated R animated Suicide Squad film, oh, yeah. mm. Suicide Squad Hell to Pay, oh. um, starring Christian Slater's Deadshot. That's right. It's uh, very that's good. A good. That's a good casting. As, as someone who's very never good. seen the, the the live action one, um, don't waste and time. I, I don't intend on seeing it after right. I've seen this, I can guarantee you that you'll be much more satisfied watching the animated version. Oh, absolutely. Especially um, if you've seen Flashpoint Paradox. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. That was That was a very good one. Um, and then I also, uh, I watched two other movies this week. I watched Parasite, the new Bong Joon-ho mm-hmm. film, and that was incredible. Uh, much like Knives Out, I don't want to say anything about it other than see it. Um, but it's fantastic. Uh, and then I also uh, slept on the floor and read my Walking Dad comic while the Adam Sandler Jennifer Aniston rom-com. This Paired is like with. a new one, and it's on Netflix. It came out within the past year. It's directed by Kyle Newichek, who directed all of Workaholics, <laughs> so that, which oh, is weird. Okay. That is bizarre. But yeah. yeah, it's just like Adam Sandler and Jennifer Aniston are married, and they go on a boat, and someone gets murdered, and it was fucking terrible. Is Kyle Newichek one of the Workaholics guys? Uh, he's the guy that sells them drugs. He's their drug dealer on the oh, show. Oh, yeah. Um, I saw Ford versus Ferrari, which was a good time. I will say that. Like, I felt very... Live fast, die young, fast cars, do it well? Not not quite, actually. A lot of it has to do with... It's very anti-corporate like corporate bureaucracy, like, let people who know what they're doing do things. So I would also say go see it. Like, I wouldn't say too much about it. It's not something where there's, like, a lot of drastic plot twists, but, you know, Matt Damon is... Matt Damon's the guy that owns Cobra. Um, something Shelby... Oh, yes, Thomas Shelby. But he was the guy, so he would make, like, these, like, expensive sports cars, and he would work on race cars with uh, Christian Bale, whose name I am forgetting. I'm not going to describe too much about it. I also watched Hunt for the Wilder People. What I've noticed is there is an art to naming your characters, and I get that the Ford versus Ferrari example is bad because they are real people, mm-hmm. but there is a way to... I, I think one of the key indicators of a good screenplay is the fact that when we talk about the movie that we are going to talk about today, I can describe the movie and name all of the principal characters. Yeah. Which is something that I couldn't do with The Fly, um, which is something that I could barely do with 
District District Nine, Nine mm-hmm. though that might be more for the pronunciations and the yeah. lack of like solidly developed characters. But anyway, I'm Sam. I'm currently drinking out of my blue water bottle, um, drinking the most wonderful beverage in existence, which is just pure hydrogen dioxide. Is that tapped? No, this is actually filtered through a Brita. Oh. Yeah, so it's nice. even more pure. Hmm. Uh, I'm Lars. I'm currently drinking some coffee and a cool blue Gatorade. Mm. Not a sponsor. No, not a sponsor. Uh, I'm Juan. I'm also drinking coffee. I don't have a scarf on this time, so... That's um, fine. Yeah. We can be equally as pretentious about <laughs> these things, but... Uh, um. Juan, you chose the movie. What is it? Yeah, uh, so I, this week I chose Shape of Water, uh, uh, Guillermo del Toro's first Oscar-winning movie for Best Picture, I think. Yeah, yeah. this won Best Picture two years ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, quick synopsis. Uh, the film itself centers around a, a mute worker, cleaner, uh, who works at a secret government laboratory um, in Baltimore, Maryland, and... She can only communicate through sign language, which does come in handy because uh, Eliza Esposito is falling in love with a creature, monster, like amphibious creature that is brought to the base. Um, And as the film goes on, uh, she starts to encounter some problems with like trying to help this creature escape its captivity. Uh, There's an FBI agent played by Michael Shannon, who uh, is trying to... He is FBI? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Huh. Um, so yeah, he, he's trying to s- kill this thing and study it from like its anatomy parts and stuff like that. And uh, there's a Russian scientist who helps out uh, the mute girl. And yeah, the, the entire film from there is just uh, like kind of a heist style movie where like they get him out of the space and then they're trying to do their best to kind of keep keep him away from Michael Shannon's character and all of it is centered around the love that these two main characters the amphibious creature and uh, Eliza have for one another because she's like trying to show people around her like the people that live around her her neighbor um, and Zelda, the, her co-worker, that this creature isn't as harmless as the government is making it seem. Um, and so, yeah, uh, this is my first time seeing it, and this mm-hmm. is Liza's first time seeing it. So I was wondering, like, what your first like, in- interpretation? So I saw this in theaters back when uh, it was the only year where I think I successfully got to see every Best Picture nom during those like three months when Movie Pass was working and like great, um, so I walked out thinking. Oh, good times. I walked out thinking, uh, you know, this isn't like my favorite movie that I have ever seen, but I can't find. Not that I was actively looking for it, but I'm like, I can't find anything particularly wrong with this, and I think I actually was actively looking at the time. And I just couldn't. I was just like, this was just like a well-constructed, just lovely movie to watch. Um, I think, Lars, knowing you, knowing myself, Juan, I don't know really really know where you fall on this uh, life outlook spectrum, but I think walking out of it, I sort of realized that uh, 
watching something that is more on the optimistic side is more out of my comfort zone than watching something that is not. And uh, well, I would certainly agree with you there. Yeah. Um. And and uh, on my second viewing, if that's where you were getting to it, I actually love it a lot more. Okay. Yeah. What did you guys think of this? I thought. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah. I was talking to Juan a little bit earlier today. Uh, from a technical standpoint, I think this is the best film that we've seen thus far. Mm -hmm. um, and from like an enjoyment standpoint, I think this is my favorite film that we've watched so far. Okay. I do I do think you know I like I've loved everything that we've seen for this show, but all, I, uh, all three movies. All three movies. Yeah, but. Uh, I don't know. This one, I I definitely had the the biggest emotional connection to this one, um, which, you know, I think is part of why it was my favorite. I like really empathized with Elsa. I really empathized with the monster. I empathized with Richard Jenkins. Oh. It was the first time that, like, I gave a shit about pretty much every character except for uh, Michael Shannon Strickland because he's such a you just hate him. Right, he is one of the better villains in recent memory for Absolutely, me. Because, like, yeah. I even... Because even that, it's like, it's he wasn't a boring villain. You liked hating him. Mm -hmm. I also wrote, it seems as though this was a movie where everyone involved got to express what they love about film. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely... it was It's a love letter to film without being as on the nose about it as, like, a... La La Land yep. or something like that where it's La very... La La Land, the artists, the like artists, all the yeah. other best picture winning movies that are like, hey, look how great Hollywood is. Mm, Birdman sort of, but that's different. Yeah. Birdman's great. Well, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, was, I was talking to Juan about this earlier. You know, the fact that she, Elsa, is a mute. Um, I believe it's Eliza. Eliza, whatever. They hardly ever see Did it. you see Frozen 2 Did this I week? Frozen? Is that why you're saying Elsa? <laughs> Dude, I haven't even seen Frozen 1. Mm. Um, but Eliza's like... Her interaction with the world is almost like her interaction with film and with old TV. Because mm -hmm. she can hear it and she can see it. But for most of the first act and most of the, or half the second act, nobody besides the monster even communicates with her. Richard Jenkins and Octavia Spencer as uh, Zelda both seemingly can speak sign language, but she almost never says anything to them. She just listens to them talk at her. And so I thought that like, having the main character be someone who almost their existence is just like constantly watching a movie. I I also liked the the fact that this was set in the '60s. It fit the like just the story that was trying to be told. Um, I, I I thought it worked well. Like just yeah, how it was set in the '60s. What Guillermo del Toro said, and he he said that the reason that he wanted to set it during the Cold War is so that it could it, it, obviously you know setting something in the past is always going to make something feel a little more fairy tale like uh -huh. uh, but he didn't want it to be directly like in your face trying to be some sort of cultural commentary i i forgot going into it that this movie was actually i guess i don't know for sure but i would assume it's rated r yeah yeah i would were, assume it's rated r f words and too many sally hawkins masturbating in a bathtub oh yeah there's a lot of boobs yeah, um, and just the general idea of 
the relationship between the two of them. This is like, I, I got the feeling of sort of joyous wonder from this movie that I would usually associate with one of the better Pixar movies. Yeah, this, mm, this yeah. is definitely a fairy tale. I mean, the blocking and the camera work make it feel very... It almost feels like a stage play mm-hmm. a lot of the time with those tons of long, like, minute-and-a-half-long takes of just the camera moving around and everybody walking around, and it feels very theatrical, very yeah. dreamlike. Oof. There's definitely some... Uh, there's definitely some... Um, what's the word that I am thinking of? Expressionism going on there. Mm-hmm. Um between the sets and which I feel like has always been Guillermo del Toro. Like Guillermo del, to- del Toro is steampunk that has never been too over the top for me, but like that's definitely this movie definitely had that steampunk feel to it. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot of uh certainly the lab where they keep the Aquaman or whatever they call him. What is this creature? Well, so it's just like an amphibious like cuz he's human man, human Fishman, human fishman, uh, fish I keep wanting it looks to not unlike Doug Jones's character. Doug Jones, who uh, is in pretty much every Guillermo del Toro movie, Hellboy. as all the monsters. Uh, yeah, yeah, it looks exactly like his character in Hellboy, also directed by Guillermo del Toro. Not exactly like, but I think very similar. Similar. It's missing you the know? goggles and the ability of hum- for human for human speech. speech. Yeah, but it's a very similar. He, it's just that, but a little bit creepier. Plus, he has glowy powers where he can glow his skin and uh, make Richard Jenkins get hair. And all of the performances in this movie are yeah, fantastic. Uh, I was um, just telling Lars earlier today uh, that I think this movie does a really good job of setting up every character's motivation. Yeah. Uh, like, from the start, uh, you have uh, Eliza's motivations, which are really clear to help out the amphibious creature. And then uh, Zelda, which is cool, like, you kind of see... Her home life when, um, keep forgetting his name. Strickland. Strickland shows up and like, he's trying to figure out where this amphibious creature goes and Eliza or Zelda's playing Johnny Tightlips and doesn't want to say a word, and so her husband has to speak up for her and then like, she yeah it, it's, I, I think yeah. each each character's motivations are, are kind of mapped yeah. out very clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, there's never a point where it's too. Uh, there's never a point where it's it's too vague but there's never a point where it's too cliche yeah which is nice it's like it's it, it it's very archetypal in the way that all the characters are structured like none of them are characters that you haven't seen in another film before but they are all like there's some originality breathed into all of it um, so i keep wanting to call this monster the gill man uh del toro's kind of tag that he would throw in uh, during these interviews and all the press that he was doing was that when he was a kid, he would watch the creature from the Black Lagoon and wish that the woman ended up with this creature who was seemingly much more empathetic towards her and who she seemed to have more of a relationship with than the human that was just kind of there. Essentially what this movie is, except instead of the human just being there, the human is the real monster. Well, had even brought up a, a, a really good point about how like every character in this movie demonstrates some uh, action that could be labeled as, like, monstrous. And or uh, compares themselves directly to uh, the fish creature. 
I mean, there's the scene where Richard Jenkins comes in after uh, his key lime pie scheme blows up in his face and his, like, second chance at a job doesn't go well. Um, and he comes back and he's just broken and defeated and he's looking at the monster as it's, like, all fucked up in Eliza's tub. And he's like, we're both alone in the same way. I'm just like you. And you're mm-hmm. like, oh, shit. You know, even going back to all of these old monster, like old monster movies, I feel like they always do a good job of making the monster empathetic. Yeah, like, like Frankenstein's even, monster. Frankenstein's monster, King you know, Kong. He doesn't understand what he's doing. Same with King Kong. Godzilla. King Kong. Usually, what ends up happening, and and very similar thing happens in The Fly. Usually, what ends up happening is, yes, you build empathy for the monster, but at the end of the day, they're still a monster, and therefore the just thing to do is for them to be destroyed. Whereas yep. this... Good, this is the exact opposite. The just thing to do is to let it go and be free. Yeah. I mean, this monster, seemingly it does, harming people is never its intention. I mean, the only, pers- the only two people it harms in the film are Richard Jenkins and Michael Shannon. Michael Shannon, he bites his fingers off because he's torturing him, and so that's pretty understandable. And Richard Jenkins, he accidentally scrapes in a moment of panic mm-hmm. and then comes back to heal him with his gl- glowy monster powers. Yeah. Um, and he you know, is shown to feel really bad about hurting Richard Jenkins. Um, and I think that's kind of where Del Toro comes down on the side of the spectrum. I think he looks towards the old monster's who don't really even understand a lot of the destruction they're causing. Mm-hmm. You know, King Kong doesn't realize he's putting this lady's life at risk. Frankenstein doesn't realize he killed the little girl, um, or Frankenstein's monster. Uh, and, you know, when you compare this fish man with Michael Shannon's real man, who understands the destruction that he's bringing, he understands he's threatening to kill this innocent woman and her husband if they don't tell him where the fish monster is. He does kill people. He does torture people. And he's completely understanding um, of the destruction and yeah. the damage he's causing. Whereas the fish monster doesn't fully understand what he's doing. And then when he starts to, he starts feeling really bad. He's sorry he killed the cat. Richard Jenkins also has that line right after he's eaten one of Richard Jenkins' cats about... Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I, I don't know the line specifically, but it's like he is a he is a wild creature. We can't expect anything more from him. It's right before he gets healed. Yeah, it is right before he gets ke- healed. But it, it's not one of those things where they're trying to create empathy by saying, oh, they're exactly like us. Like, they're no different from us. That's why we should, that's why we should be okay. It's like a- acknowledging that this is a sentient creature that also has its own life and we have to coexist with it which is you know antithetical to how michael shannon sees his place in the world there was a lot of really good symbolism in this movie i definitely think that the fingers were my favorite yeah Um, yeah they i mean they rot as michael shannon's soul continues to throughout the course of the film i think he had mentioned why there were some issues with it, uh, something to do with the mustard in the paper bag that they put them in. It's a while before he rips those fingers off. He makes an attempt, like, halfway through the movie, when that's when, like, the... It's something about pus and fingers, man. But, like, the, the, he tries to take them off, and, like, that pus shoots out, and mm-hmm. he's just like, all right, might as well just keep them on for a while. Yeah. 
Yeah, he can see them starting to rot, and he, in a way that that hatred is building up and just making him angrier and angrier and angrier. But if he were to take those fingers off, he would not be made in God's image the way that he uh, said to um, to said at the uh, earlier in the film. He would be a freak like the rest of the people in this movie. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, he really is one of the better did, uh, villains. Yeah, when when he was talking to her about that, like about God, he's like, "Don't you? God was created in our image. He looks something like me, and then he looks to Zelda, and he's like, or he could look something like you. But let's be honest, he probably looks a little something like me." Mm-hmm. There were so many things about that character that I think, in the hands of a lesser screenwriter, as far as dialogue goes, like just the character itself, in the hands of a lesser screenwriter, in the hands of a lesser performer it would feel so inauthentic like there's so that kind cliche, of yeah. yeah there's that kind of like aggressive male character that doesn't seem like that seems like what a white conservative male would imagine a liberal woman would write a male character as like i've seen them in so many plays and like so many films where it's I am evil and I'm evil for the sake of being evil and like my only goal, like my only motivation is to see you suffer. Um, but I mean, that, and that's what I love about this is they don't even shy away from giving you moments of empathy towards Michael Shannon. There's, he, he is very driven. He is very career oriented and uh, what the general says to him at that one point about uh and the general's like you got 72 hours yeah but even before that when he's like uh um he's talking about being a decent man like he is regardless of whether or not those intentions are right he in his mind he is doing what he feels like is right and he essentially is told at the at the at the apex of all of that hatred building up and like the fingers are about to come off he is basically told, decency means nothing. You do what we tell you to do. You're a cog in this machine. And he kind of explodes. He certainly explodes. The last yeah. act of the film, he's just unraveling. I mean, yeah, monsters aren't born, they're created. Mm-hmm. Really. Well, and some characters in this film, like Giles or Giles, Richard Jenkins, are given the opportunity to be monstrous. And like one of the points... That kind of hit a theme right on the head is he's leaving Eliza's place and she's begging him to stay and begging him to help her break the monster out of the government facility. And he's like, it's not even a human as he's walking away. And she slams on the wall and signs to him, uh, if we do nothing, neither are we. I, I think, we, you know, where it gets into how much of a cultural commentary this film is, is the fact that all of our heroes belong in some sort of minority group. Oh, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. you've you got have... a gay man, you got a black lady, you've got a disabled woman. Dimitri. Literally have a, you literally have a protagonist who has no voice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You have a uh, African-American woman, and you have a... In the 60s. Yeah, in the, just to kind of, you know, put everything in place, they have a... Uh, 
uh, the, the, new, the news thing where it's showing the civil rights protests oh, and yeah, Giles yeah. is like, turn that off. Like, I don't want to deal with that right now, which feels indicative of so much of, you know, life right now. Um, mm-hmm. Seemingly the only two, like, relationships that she has, her coworker and her neighbor, um, they serve as her mouthpiece. They serve as providing a voice. Literally. For the voiceless. The reason why I think Giles and Zelda have the stronger character arcs in the movie is they have to be able to move from just being a voice for this voiceless person to taking action to actually be able to do something that helps them feel like they actually have a voice in society. We watch something like The Shape of Water and there is very there is very clearly a a coding of some sort of actively trying to fight for the people that don't have a voice. Mhm. Do you feel inspired more to do that than, like, actually go out and do something than you did before? Be honest. No. Uh, nah. Not really. I mean, like, I, I say that because, like, as a, as a minority, <laughs> my voice is, well, in the eyes of the government, my voice isn't already that important. But it's nice to, you know, see these movies and know that there's other people that can feel inspired to help me out. <laughs> so that's cool. <laughs> I mean, I already kind of felt like my task in life or something I was supposed to be doing as a straight white dude who like recognizes that there are some of these issues that a lot of straight white dudes refuse to even acknowledge our issues. Uh, you know, it's kind of our job to keep I don't fuck I I, I want to say this without using the word woke I was just about <laughs> to say what's the difference between like what is actually the next logical step then from movies that make people more woke and I wouldn't say that this movie was this movie is definitely more of like a more... call to action than a call to woke I think yeah so what's the <laughs> appropriate step that would have to be taken in order to go from call to woke to call to action you know the the saying love thy neighbor protect thy neighbor i think that's the next logical step so i mean like in film i don't know composition and oh i was going to say like maybe together. the next action step would be like fucking take the tires out on an ice van <laughs> what you know like ice the oh i thought you meant ice yeah. like no, I was just like thinking a truck of, that of, moved, of like an ice road you know? trucker truck. <laughs> I was thinking of ways I could protect my neighbor and, you know, maybe crash in an ice truck. And then like open it in the back and be like, get out of there. I think this film was more about empathy than mm-hmm. taking some sort of stand, but it did get, it got it got me thinking about it because mm-hmm. it got me especially that line about he's not even human if we do nothing neither are we. Mhm. I mean, that scene right there, I think, is kind of the film's thesis statement. It is the film's thesis statement, but does it work then? If that's, like, the core of this film, if that's, like, what we are supposed to take away from this, is it effective if people aren't actually going out and trying to help one of the 700 disenfranchised groups that exist just in this country right now? Um, I mean, if you're putting success or failure of this film on other people's 
actions, I, I would guess it fails in that respect just because I don't think anybody went out and like tried to get the kids out of the cages. I, like, I don't think the movie itself fails. Like, no, I don't either. But I think in that area, yeah, it, I don't think it's successful. I don't think it is possible for someone's voice to not be reflected throughout their the work of the film they're making. Yeah, certainly. Especially somebody like Guillermo del Toro who both wrote and directed it. I guess it's just more of this this movie has a very strong voice. Certainly. In and of itself, what do you think it takes for a movie to be able to inspire action? Hmm. Uh, you think there's got to be a clear message. Yeah. A clear statement of action. Because, I mean, one of the reasons why I would say this doesn't inspire action is because there's no, like, specific step, you know? Yeah. If this movie inspires action, it's more like, look for somebody in your life who doesn't have a voice, who's struggling, and help them. Um, which I guess is kind of a specific yeah. step. There's no uh, there's no wash and subtitle at the end of the film that says, uh, only through the removal of violence can we achieve world peace, <laughs> or anything like that. Um, oh. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Now that's a movie that inspires action. Yeah. Miami Connection. Miami that Connection. That action great movie. was drink a bottle of gin, but it inspired action nonetheless. I don't know. I guess I don't want to think it's impossible for a movie to be able to do that. I certainly don't think it's impossible. I just don't have yeah. a great answer for you. But mm. it also I don't necessarily think it's really successfully been done in the way that you're talking about it. Yeah. And if it has, I'm unaware of it. So mm-hmm. All last I checked, it was six listeners out there. If you know of an example, you can message make, one of us on Instagram because you're make one an of our friends. For uh, make an argument for Black Klansman. Um, the last like the last I want to say like six minutes of that movie uh, is just like Spike Lee deciding to uh, show footage from the uh, uh, Unite the Right rally in. When was it? Oh, Charlottesville. Yeah, Charlottesville. Um, like the his choice, like, and, and that's part of the reason why I, I always cry towards the end of that movie, just because of like the the real life consequences of, that that event um, kind of spiraled into, and how you know people's reactions to it weren't as strong as they mm-hmm. they should have been. I, I think I think Black Klansman does a really good job of kind of introducing people to a real life problem and. Uh, with real life solutions, which is you know I- integrating more colored people into the police force, yeah, uh, to kind of be able to, um, you know, communicate better with neighborhoods that are, you know, affected by low income and and uh, and gang violence. So I think I think I'd, if there's one film I'd make a case for, I'd say it's Black Klansman, but yeah. that one's still based on a true story, I think. Yeah, well, and so, that doesn't, I mean, that yeah. that's great. I mean, I like hearing that. Spike Lee is someone who He's certainly trying to does help. that. Yeah. Yeah. Spike Lee I is someone that takes action. I didn't see Black Klansman. I also, but I did see Chirac, which I heard was 
pretty bad things about Shy Ray. Oh, I would not say that. I would say it, I loved it. Okay. I loved Chirac. Um, I know that there were some people who took issue with what the movie was actually about, which was first off, it's grace. It, it's based on Lysistra, which was uh, a Greek myth, essentially where, and basically what it is is someone's son gets killed in gang violence and the women of the community decide to go on a sex strike until the men <laughs> no longer do this, which I think a couple of people were talking about how ridiculous that was. One, it's based on a Greek myth, so it's not like Spike Lee was trying to shove out answers, but they talk about in the movie a real example of a, a real example of... Um, I believe it was a village somewhere in Africa oh, I've heard about that, that did the same thing. Because on that very base lizard brain animalistic level, the only thing that men like doing more than killing each other is fucking. So, I mean, Michael Shannon really just loves missionary in the shape of water. Yeah, I, I, that's, that is the, the one thing that I think I was taking away from this movie was this, I felt so deeply empathetic to everyone and loved seeing it to the point where I wanted to see it take the next step and make me want to do something. And I guess there wasn't a, there wasn't a specific, what? I had a, no, I had a dirty thought. Just make you go. <laughs> make you want to fuck a fish? Um, that was my whole family. No one watched this with me because they were like, oh, that's the fish sex movie. And I'm like, there's more to it than that. Like, it was so much, this movie was so much more than just fish sex. It wasn't like there was a specific issue. It was just kind of like a general movie about empathy. So I guess if it was maybe more directioned in the way that I would imagine Black Klansman is, uh, I could maybe see more results. But like, that's, I, I was so moved by watching the character arcs of Giles and Zelda that I just, I I wanted to feel more of that. I think Zelda was probably my favorite character outside of um, Eliza, just because, like, the way that, for the time period it took place in and for her to be as commanding as she was, despite mm -hmm. her positioning, was just, like, I thought that was really cool. Um, kind of showed, like, just how well the um like Guillermo del Toro's choices of being able to like show that these characters aren't as helpless as they oh yeah no uh, no character in this movie is defined by their limitation or mm -hmm. yeah uh, no, or what minority subset they belong to i'm just uh overall impression of this movie for me is that it is made by someone who, I, I think Guillermo del Toro, I mean, he's certainly, an, uh, you use the word auteur, mm -hmm. but uh, he also seems to me like he is the kind of auteur that is more healthy for the film industry. I was looking up some of the people that worked on this. I don't think he was anal retentive Stanley Kubrick, and I don't know. I've never mm -hmm. worked with Guillermo del Toro. Um, I don't think he was this anal retentive Stanley Kubrick, mm -hmm. uh, you need to do everything that I say. It, I feel like it's easier for us to talk about movies that we saw flaws with. And yeah, there are, I have very few flaws yeah. with this one. Yeah, this yeah. was airtight. I mean, we had 
brought it up last week because there was a lot that The Fly was trying to say that I think this movie did better. Yeah. But there's also a lot about uh, that District 9, I feel like, was trying to say that this movie did better, especially yeah. in terms of like identifying <laughs> identifying the other. You guys got takeaways? Uh, one, don't trust, one big takeaway? Don't trust white a, men in suits. Oh, yeah. I think that's the... Or, or how this movie would fuel your creative drive. Mm. Probably that you can really tell any story you want um, and you can make it interesting as long as you just give a shit about the characters, make all the characters' motivations work. Because like I knew going into this movie, and the reason I had never saw it was because I knew that it was like, okay, a woman's going to fall in love with a fish monster. And I was like, eh. I don't care how well it's done. I'm uninterested in seeing it. And then I sat down to watch it, and it was like, no, it was done so well that I was interested to see it. Mm-hmm. I was like, uh, you know, I know she's going to fuck this fish at some point, and I'm not going to be interested. And by the time she's fucking the fish, I was like, hell yeah, this is awesome. I didn't like how human its lips were. <laughs> <laughs> that I wrote that in my notes. I was like, okay, that's some, that, that for some reason the lips... Are the creepiest thing about this fish man to me. Fish man is shredded. Oh yeah, he's definitely shredded. Shredded, cut to the bone. Oh yeah, um, I mean he is a he is a handsome fish. <laughs> no one at any point. I almost think that it, maybe not necessarily to a fault. No one at any point is, who knows that she fucked the fish because Michael Shannon doesn't know at any point. But, yo, like, Zelda's accept, acceptance of like her or, so after she escapes or the the she helps Fishman escape and the next day like Zelda's asking her questions and she's like so how how was it and she's like explaining to her how they had sex and like Zelda's just so cool with it. She's just like very open-minded about the whole thing. And, like that scene when uh Stryker comes to her house and like the the husband rats her out and she's just like you wouldn't understand it's love. <laughs> <laughs> all Michael Sturberg, uh, Doctor Robert Hostetler, uh, all he knows is that she is trying to help him escape and like him being charged to kill the Gill Man. Um, he's like, okay, I'm gonna help you, but he has his own motivations. Like this this creature is fucking fantastic. I want like like. I, I can't justify killing this living thing. I would have loved if he was like alive long enough to like learn that she had had sex with it and him be like, that's, that's, that's why you wanted to break him out. <laughs> I thought you were just trying to preserve life. You, you molested my fish. <laughs> like, um, Hey, it's totally consensual. Oh, it is very, I mean, at first he, he makes the moves. He does make, he does does make, make the, the moves, moves, and then she comes back. Um, Juan, what was your biggest like creative takeaway from this? Uh, I really love the idea of not having to use the conventional like ways in which the characters communicate with one another. Like the, I think the fact that she was mute and she had to use two of her closest friends as a vehicle to kind of help her her motivations. Her motivations was really cool. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to think of what other movies do a really good job of doing that, but not coming to mind right now. I mean, there's a lot of silent um, films. Yeah. Because you have yeah. to be able to see things from expression in that way. There were times in this movie where I sort of wish Giles hadn't been there to like be her mouthpiece because Sally Hawkins was so goddamn good in this that I wanted to see more of a... Uh, I wanted to see more um, scenes where I just know 
what she's thinking or what she's feeling from her facial expressions. Oh, yeah. I mean, she was completely communicative. I really, they do some subtitles for her, mm-hmm. uh, for sign language, which, you know, occasionally it, it works to the benefit, like the, if we do nothing, neither are we. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, you can understand everything she's attempting to communicate without the subtitles. There's one moment specifically that stood out to me this time around. The first time I had watched it, I think I had thought, well, who knows if they actually got away. I mean, Giles is doing his voiceover narration. Maybe this is just the fairy tale ending that he is saying. Like, I mean, I never saw them again, but like, this is what I wish happened. Mm-hmm. What I noticed is there is a scene uh, in the the courtship of the of Eliza and the fish man um, when she's bringing him hard boiled eggs. There's a scene, the scene where she's showing him music and she brings the record player in. There is a cut where it goes from distance to more of a close-up and the sound of the record player gets noticeably louder, which I would imagine is just Del Toro saying, you are the camera, like as the audience, like this, you are existing in this scene therefore everything the cam everywhere the camera is is where you are which is why at the end this time i was like oh no they did get away because i am the camera Mm -hmm. that sort of subtle cue to uh what the reality of the situation is because as dreamlike as this movie was and as fantastical as this movie was dream sequence yeah it's happening it's all real Mm -hmm. which is great who would you guys recommend this movie to? Uh, I would rec- recommend this movie to literally anyone mm-hmm. that's old enough to see a rated R movie. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I would even say this is something that I would have if I had kids. And I'm, I know that a lot of people I know would not do this. But if I had kids, I would have no problem with them watching this. As long as they're like 13, you know? Yeah. As long as they're at a reasonable age to have already discovered masturbation for themselves. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's fair. That's I fair. This is a good film. Yeah. You know, I I really think that my mother should watch it. I think she would enjoy it. Oh, yeah, I know my mom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I wish I'd my... Very hard-pressed to think of somebody that wouldn't get something out of this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would... There, there is no one that I wouldn't recommend this movie to. Like, I would love for anyone to see this. I think that... It kind of this this won an Oscar, and I feel like it sort of slipped under the radar. Like mm-hmm. people don't. Well, people give less and less of a shit about the Oscars these days. True. Yeah. One that movie existed. You, was that? Did you have like a specific subset, or were you kind of in the same boat? Uh, yeah, I'm on the same boat. If anything, I'll, I w- like next time I'm home, I'm gonna definitely recommend my mom watch this. Okay. <laughs> hey, yo, Gloria, you want to see a lady fuck a fish? She does. Uh, she does love watching fish. Fish fuck. Fish fuck. Yeah. Gloria fish fuck. <laughs> Gloria fish fuck Toledo. Um, <laughs> I can cut that. No, you're fine. I can stay on there. That's great. <laughs> like, my mom doesn't listen to this. I highly doubt it. No. She, she oh, wouldn't even understand half I, the stuff. I told my mom, I, like, I, I mentioned this to my mom in passing. She's like, you're doing a podcast? I want to listen. I'm like, do you want to listen to the psychosexual intentions behind David Cronenberg's The Fly and she was like nope and I'm like you don't need to listen to it then <laughs> um, Lars yeah movie okay. uh, so I don't know um, we've been we haven't really talked about anything uh, I'm kind of feeling like should break away 
genre-wise from where we've been. Yeah. I mean, maybe uh, movies, we've been yeah. very monster, sci-fi, horror-y. Mm-hmm. Huh, well, you could also just say a movie. Yeah. I could just say a movie. Um, Don't think about it too much. Um, now I'm thinking about it too much. <laughs> oh, there's so much happening right now. Okay. Um, Juan and I are going to count down from five, and you have to just say a movie after five. Jesus Christ. Okay. okay. Five, four, three, two, one. Role models. <laughs> okay. Yes. Yes. I haven't seen role models in like... Wait, no, I haven't seen role models. Oh, you haven't seen it? I have not seen role models. It's, the, it's the only movie Paul Rudd's ever written that I know. Really? Actually, he did some screenwriting for Ant-Man 2. Two, yeah. yeah okay. Two. But up until then, yeah, it's the only thing that he has a writing credit on. Um, all right. Well, uh, I guess we're watching Role Models for uh, next week. <laughs> and yeah. uh, thanks I mean, for... I was, the only other movie in my head was Black Dynamite, and I watched that too recently. Yeah. We could record a podcast on that right now. I have that whole screenplay in my phone.